Hello, and welcome back to IFTF's Future Now, where we investigate future possibilities and societal transformations in the domains of science, technology, education, and economics. I'm Jean Hagen, IFTF's executive producer, and in this episode, you'll find some debunking of long-standing economic myths with the help of Professor Neil Krauss from the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and his provocative new book, The Fantasy Economy, Neoliberalism, Inequality, and the Education Reform Movement. Neil challenges common beliefs about our education policies and the ways that they may be driving even greater inequality. Neil talks with IFTF ED Marina Gorbis about the realities versus the expectations of the jobs landscape. Enjoy and learn. And be sure to subscribe to Future Now on your favorite streaming platform. Welcome, Neil Kraus. Thank you so much for taking the time. I just finished reading your book, The Fantasy Economy, and really enjoyed it and was looking forward to this conversation. So, Neil, you're a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin, and you've written many different books. This is your latest. And the name of this book is The Fantasy Economy, which is an intriguing title, Neoliberalism, Inequality, and the Education Reform Movement. So let's start with that, Fantasy Economy. Explain the title. Sure. I started to write a book on education reform many years ago. Initially, it was just studying uh, charter schools and vouchers, just K-12 education reform. And at the time, I was involved in several committees on my campus at the University of Wisconsin River Falls. You know, we were sort of constantly getting our budget cut and tenure was eroded and, and all kinds of things were going on. And, and I became involved in a lot of the campus committee work. And, and I began to, as part of that work, really look into the labor market. And I had started this book just on K-12 education reform, which I envisioned as kind of a textbook. But as part of all this campus committee work, I, I started to read up on the labor market and I and it occurred to me that so much of what we hear in higher ed, really, it's like the air we breathe in higher ed is misleading. I call them zombie ideas. It's ideas that should have died a long time ago, refuted by facts, but refused to die. This is definitely one of those ideas. For sure. And it's not top secret you know, data that the Department of Labor puts out. You don't have to meet somebody in an alley or something and get an envelope. It's voluminous and it's continuous and it's updated all the time. And so that there was this disconnect between what we're hearing on campus all the time is there's always a skills gap. And the workforce is never good enough and employers can never find enough skilled workers. And between that sort of rhetoric and that narrative, and then the reality that we live in the real economy, right? We drive around and we work and our spouses or kids or whomever, they get jobs in, in the real economy. So we, we know actually a fair amount about it, even though most people don't necessarily know numbers because they don't look the stuff up. And so the disconnect, I eventually arrived at this, this concept of, hey, this is like a fantasy. This is a fantasy version of the economy. Unfortunately, it's so popular and it's so entrenched, it's really driving much of the discussion in higher ed and, and also in K-12. And also in labor and when people talk about future work. So the fantasy and the myth is that we have this skill shortage and we need to educate more people. We need to give more people degrees and that's going to improve their income. 
uh, there's going to create greater wealth and the economic returns will be greater with degrees and education. Is that the fantasy? In part, I stipulate in the book that it is true that on average, if you have a college degree or an associate's or a master's or whatever, that you make more than, you know, the degree below. I mean, that's those and those numbers are really what the whole thing, well, not the whole thing, but a lot of the fantasy economy kind of hinges on, or at least our marketing efforts in higher ed. That's certainly true, but that's just on average. And what the fantasy, you know, part of this whole equation is, is more along the lines of there are plenty of jobs for people out there who get their degrees. Matter of fact, there's a shortage of people for these high-skilled, high-education jobs. And so the assumption is always that if we educate more people, they will there, there are jobs out there. You just got to go get the education, go get the skills, and, and you'll be able to get them. The reality is quite different, of course. Yes. So I want to unpack it because this is very close to my heart and some of the work we've been doing where we've been talking for a while now, for probably 10 years. If you look at the data, it just doesn't bear out that having more degrees is going to solve all of our economic inequality issues and that it's going, there are these great jobs out there that if only you got degrees and you got skills and education, that you'll be better off. So let's unpack this data because the data is out there, but it's very hard for, and like you probably, you have this conversation and people argue with the data or they have, they nod politely and say, great. And then it comes back to what's the solution? Educate more skills, more, more STEM, all of these other things. So let's unpack the data. What you said is, it's true that if you take the same people with the same demographics, right, the person who has a degree is better off than the person who doesn't have a degree. Exactly the same demographic. Yeah, I would qualify that a little bit, actually, uh, because it, it's certainly the case that they would have higher income on average, on average. Better off, I, I guess I would qualify it a little bit because better off would that would have to incorporate uh, student loan debt uh, or any other kind of debt, right? Um, because you can make $60,000 and have a certain level of debt. Somebody who makes 50000 might have a very different level of debt. So the, the fact that one, you know, $10,000 more, but on average, the person with more formal education would have higher income on average. But then you got to look at other things though, too. Okay, so let's look at the other thing. Let's unpack this data because it's complicated. So the data from the Federal Reserve, St. Louis, I've been looking at this data a lot, came out like about three or four years ago. They looked at return to degrees, not education, return to degrees have been going down since 1930s, meaning that if you took people at the same level of education in the same point in their lives and compared them, that maybe in if you went to school in 1930s and 1940s, your income would be twice as much as somebody who didn't go to college. Today, it's something like 40 or 30%. And returns to wealth have been pretty much close to zero. So basically, what's been happening is that return on investment in degrees have been going down continuously for 80 years. And particularly if you look at African-Americans, returns to wealth have been pretty much zero. So if you have a degree and you're an African-American, it's not going to increase your wealth. 
in the book, I don't use that Fed data much, but I am familiar with it. And that's a very troubling reality. It's difficult because when you point this out, the data that I focus on, the New York branch of the Fed, their data set on bachelor's degree holders and underemployment specifically has shown that for decades, about a third, at any one time, about a third of, of bachelor's degree holders are underemployed, about a third. And that number doesn't change at all. And of course, underemployed, meaning working in a job that requires less than a bachelor's degree and almost, almost all the time making less, sometimes a lot less. And, and that's why the whole question of data become, it's really all about the data, right? Uh, and that's why the book is really, uh, as I see it, is it's about two sets of data and it's about words. It's about the words that are used to sell. It's a political campaign, the fantasy economy, to always keep the focus on the education system as the only source of economic opportunity. And that's what I argue in the book. And that's really what unites all these different funders who might, might have some minor ideological differences, but they really, they're all hostile to labor. They, they all uh, essentially support outsource and not raising minimum wage and all that kind of stuff. So let's continue to unpack this data and what you just said, which is that there is a kind of an oversupply of people with degrees in that, like you said, a uh, third of the people with bachelor's degrees are underemployed. Here in California, we worked with the Future Work Commission and something like 20% of people with bachelor's degrees make less than $15 an hour. And one striking data, of course, if you look we have the highest educated population in terms of degrees, right? But wages have not budged. So it's from 1960s until today, highest educated population, just in terms of degrees. But wages have not changed and average wealth also has not really, well, average has changed, but there are, in terms of returns to wealth has been decreasing. So that's another interesting piece of data that people will, a lot of times ignore. So let's also take the other side, which is that education, there's other data that shows the positive impacts of education and higher ed in particular, in terms of health outcomes, in terms of participation in the political process, in terms of openness to immigration, depending on how you look at it, but more tolerance. There are all kinds of positive things that come with higher education and degrees. And, you know, there's a certain status, social status associated with that. So what do you think about that? That story is rarely told. Well, it's actually being told quite a bit. If you read a lot of foundation-funded uh, work these days, they emphasize the health benefits and this kind of stuff. I think that the, those are obviously very important indicators. I think, by the way, I mean, you can get into some methodological questions about are these are all of these things a function of income, you know, life expectancy, health outcomes, and all the rest of it? Is education dental to that? And that's the technical sort of question. You'd have to look at the research. But I think those stories are being told. I'm suspicious, though, of focusing on those stories because, again, the whole point of my book, well, one of the major points is that the debate about the discussion about economic opportunity really has to be a, a much broader discussion. The reason education is always on defense is always getting killed politically is because we've made it responsible for things that it can't do, right? We've made it responsible for creating middle-class stability and social mobility and all the rest of it. And by definition, if we crank out a bunch more sociology or English or physics or chemistry or whatever majors, we're not creating jobs for them. That's not how the economy works, right? There are so many assumptions that go into 
the reasoning there. And, you know, we've got decades worth of data that shows that you can't just educate more people that we have an economy dominated by warehouses and food services and, and retail and, and all those kinds of jobs. And yeah, we're overproducing bad jobs basically. Yeah. And, and the funders of the education reform movement, they don't want to talk about that at all. They want to talk about us. They want to talk about higher ed and that's all they end up talking about. It's us and it's people who need to get skilled and upskilled. It's kind of like similar situation to the conversation about sort of obesity epidemic. It's like, oh, you have to exercise more and you have to eat better and you have to do all these things. It's all you. It's your individual responsibility rather than the system works such that it produces obesity. That's a good analogy. I agree with that. And rather than look at how the whole system works, we're looking at individuals and individual behavior. And then the debate becomes entirely about the education system or uh, about students, about people. Individual about responsibility, right? Or what major, why are you majoring in humanities? You should be majoring in STEM. Talk about STEM and that uh, myth also. Yeah, STEM, there, there's a great book uh, called The Math Myth. Um, and the subtitle is And Other STEM Delusions by, I want to say Andrew Hacker. There's a few hackers. I think it's Andrew Hacker. And I read that book uh, in the early stages of my research. And he, he just blows some of these myths out of the water that, no, there really aren't that many STEM jobs. And, and then he gets really into the weeds about math too. And that very few people actually use advanced math, including engineers. And, and then a uh, title bombs book also, which I cite and draw on. That's an excellent book on the myth of STEM. And, you know, you just look at su the supply of jobs in STEM, which again is all federal data over time. And six point something percent of all jobs are in STEM jobs. And that includes a lot of two-year degrees, some tech technical jobs, and also includes a lot of advanced degrees. So you take those out, the number of jobs for bachelor's degree holders in STEM is, is two, three percent, maybe of all jobs, of all jobs. And what Teitelbaum does and what other researchers have done, they've talked about how this is, this goes back to the 50s and 60s and really industry pushing relentlessly for more engineers, more scientists, and more tech workers. And, and that really continued and then escalated during the Great Depression. The term STEM, I talk about the origins of it in, in, in my book and a woman who was involved in, I think, in the National Science Foundation, it used to be called SMET, right? And that was not going to work, right? <laughs> and, and then she, you know, she renamed it. And then I found an interview with her and she said, no, it, it, she liked the ring to STEM. And STEM is brilliant politically. You can't lose with that, that word. And just based on what a, the dictionary tells us about what that word means, right? And, and you know, the rest is history. It, it, we're still adding more STEM programs. Now I think history knows the jobs numbers quite well. They know the numbers. And so it's marketed a little bit differently. Now it's marketed much more towards low-income kids, towards kids in poor neighborhoods, right? If we make uh, all low-income kids who go to high-poverty schools, coding is taught in elementary school. Which is very interesting with AI and chat GPT. People are beginning to talk about that coding jobs are basically going to disappear because you don't need really sophisticating coding jobs anymore because some of this is going to be done by AI. It reminds me of telegraph operators were a hundred years ago were prestigious jobs, but they were displaced very quickly. And coding is in a similar place, I think. And I think the numbers bear that out. You look at the breakdown of STEM jobs and then go to the computer technology category. 
as I recall, programmers, I don't think they're called coders in the federal data. I think they're called programmers. I think it's actually declining, not, not increasing slowly, but I think it's actually declining. Whereas software engineers might be increasing, but actual people that do the coding, the programming, and that's, I think, been true for a number of years. Which is what's being taught to in poor neighborhoods and boot camps and all these coding camps and everything else. So let's talk about the myth and how, who is behind this myth? How was this myth created? And I was, I'm familiar with all the foundations that you write about in the book. And it, I was torn between thinking, was this a well-intentioned misreading of the data or is this has more sinister underpinning? Is this a cabal that has been promoting this myth? in their old self-interest. What, how, where do you come out on that? I think it's, it's all politics, right? And I think that if you go back and you look at the Reagan administration, and it, it really starts there with this report, Workforce 2000, produced by the Hudson Institute. And, I think it, and by the way, if you read that whole report, I quoted it so often in the book, there's so much in that report. It really lays out the agenda for neoliberalism in its entirety without using that word, because I don't think that word really existed it, right. then, or at least not in, in mainstream usage. But they talk in the preface of that book, they talk the undersecretary of labor or whoever, uh, whoever he was for Reagan talked about basically that the New Deal programs and great society programs are no longer relevant. The, the you know, na nature of work is changing and there are all these jobs out there. The, the education is the key. Education is the real key to everybody's economic future. And so, so they laid out that agenda and then subsequent uh, foundations really built on it. And so I don't, I wouldn't use the word cabal. I would say that it's a very clear attempt though, to make the entire discussion about economic opportunity solely about education. And in order to do that, you, you can't use federal data. <laughs> you can't because you're not going to get there. The federal data right now, as we just talked about, shows largely a low wage, low education labor market. And on the other hand, it shows the best educated population in American history. So you can't rely on that stuff. Uh, so what you do is you fund your own data, and which pretty much always says that employers can't find enough skilled workers. And what I argue really is that everybody has a right to represent their interests, right? This is America, the First Amendment. And the fantasy economy is really, it's really mainly constructed by corporate interests and consultants and foundations. Uh, and it's very much in their interests because it deflects all attention away from the shareholder economy that's been created in the last several decades. And there's no discussion of the decline of organized labor. And there's no discussion of the outsourcing of jobs or temp work or independent contractors or monopolies or anything that we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your local English department and the K-12 schools. <laughs> and and they, it's been extraordinarily successful. I'm always curious because, like I said, for 10 years we've been saying this, but it's this myth is so deeply embedded in, and there's a whole institutional infrastructure that's been created. People's careers has been basically based on the theory of change that foundations, you know, well-meaning foundations have bought into it. And now it's so difficult for this myth to be debunked because of you have to destroy the whole infrastructure that feeds the myth. So how, what do you think? Why is that? I think you're right. It is very difficult. And there's so many vested interests. And just educational consulting 
Uh, anybody who works higher, higher ed or really in K-12 can tell you that we're just inundated with new products all the time. And our administrators are sold all these products as game changers. And it's an entire industry and it's growing all the time. And workforce development and budgets of federal and billions and billions of dollars going into workforce development. And absolutely. Absolutely. And so many different products about how to recruit and, re and retain students and all these things are marketed to higher ed and school and we buy them. I think it is very entrenched, right? But at the same time, I'm a little bit optimistic. I think when I talk to people, well, what I call the outside world, outside of the education system, they understand what I'm saying. They understand what John Shelton is saying quite well because they, they live in the real economy. They live in the world and they know firsthand that, you know, because they, themselves or their kids or their brother or whomever, their parents, got, did all the right things and doesn't have middle-class stability, does have a good degree, did have a good job. And then the, their firm was bought by another firm and their good job went away. And um, so it is entrenched. That's certainly true. That's, but at the same time, I'm a little bit optimistic because I think that, I think that a lot of people get it. I think that the hardest audience really is inside higher ed. I mean, to say inside higher ed, to say that the skills gap is just a, the most destructive myth that, that has been promulgated in the last several decades. I and mean, it's like going into a church saying there's no God. It, what do you mean? It's the whole foundation, right? And it started decades ago and it's repeated reflexively in, in every single sort of report and podcast and interview and opinion piece and news. It's just, it's just a given that the skills of the workforce are inadequate. And so that's where the education system, well-meaning educators, well-meaning administrators, well-meaning professors, that's where we start our day because that's the air we breathe. And so it's almost like the hardest audience is inside the education system. Because I think, oh, if you talk to the workers at Starbucks, they get it. Emma could have master's degrees and definitely bachelor's degrees. Exactly. So, and, and by the way, why, one of the things I talk about in the book, and it really didn't occur to me until near the end of the writing process that so much of this stuff from the Reagan administration right on up to Gates and Lumina and the Ford Foundation at Georgetown, that's actually not in the education school, the CEW, but a lot of the stuff, a lot of these entities are in ed schools. They're, they're in ed school. We fund this research in education schools. So we get education professors teaching future teachers that the labor market is upscaling and there's all these STEM jobs and the workers are never well qualified. And then they go out and they teach K-12 and that's the world. And that, that's why we're in this position that we're in. I, I do think, you know, again, I mean, we'll know something's a little bit off. It's interesting that you said that the biggest problem lies in education departments and in colleges and universities and the whole education system. I was doing a session with a large group from community colleges in California, and I was showing this data on return of degrees to income and to wealth and how it's been declining and all of that data. I had this really surprising reaction, they were saying, oh my God, thank you so much because we're constantly blamed that it's us and it's not us. And it, it's just amazing to me. But you mentioned something about data and kind of the difference between federal data and other data that foundations and other sort of people promoting the skills gap myth using. How does that happen? At the, at the beginning of the education reform movement, there were some uh, beginning meaning the 1980s, really, the modern movement. There were some prominent 
studies. And the Sandia report I talk about in the book in some detail, which was funded by the Department of Energy and by the George H.W. Bush uh, Department of Energy, basically came to all these conclusions that were contrary to a nation at risk. And it was based mainly on federal data. And I did a little bit of research in it and it was covered in the mainstream press at the time, a li- somewhat, said, hey, wait a minute, very controversial. This report's not, not actually going to be released because the report, the abbreviated version that was published in an academic journal said, we actually have an oversupply of, of uh, scientists and engineers for decades to come and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that what, what happened is education reformers just looked at those numbers and those numbers just can't work. You can't create an education reform movement that says sending everybody to college is going to fix inequality on the basis of, of those numbers. And so they started to create many of their own numbers. And that's what the Center on Education and the Workforce at Georgetown did. In 2008, Anthony Carnivale explicitly challenged in Change Magazine the BLS data and came to very different numbers about the educational requirements of the labor market. Um, and if, and today, if you look at pretty much any, uh, report that's coming from uh, an education reform organization or a consultant, just go right to the notes and see what's in the note. It's this echo chamber of a handful of privately funded foundation funded, uh, groups, entities that, that produce pretty much all the data. And then it's repeated endlessly. Every once in a while, a census data will sneak in, but it's very rare <laughs> census data showing educational attainment, which is actually very high, highest ever right now. But when, when the Washington Post a few years ago, I talk about this in the book, they published an article on the Fed data on underemployment among bachelor's degree holders. And, you know, that produced a big, big uproar and required a response. So, you know, what I end up arguing in the book, and this kind of occurred to me as I looked at these two sets of data, which told very different stories, right? But yet we're constantly inundated with this word data. And I, what I argue in the book is, is that data is really about the word data. And it's not because because it turns out not many people check the sources or the numbers or do basic scholarship on that. And because if you invoke that word in higher ed, you know, it's amazing. A room full of PhDs, it's like you can hear a pin drop. Somebody has data and there's numbers on a screen. They must be true because they're called data, right? But you don't go underneath the data. Yeah. You know, when you're telling your story about talking to community college folks, I thought your story was going to end very differently. I was ready for you to say that, how dare you uh, tell us that, that, you know, and and say, well, we have other numbers or whatever. You're saying just the opposite. That's very encouraging to me because I would have expected a negative reaction to what you said. Which is very different story when I do the same and use the same data and talk to foundations and others who tend to argue with the data. Or, yeah. But the people who are in the system, it's blame the victim, as you said. It's the professors and the departments are being blamed that they're responsible for creating these graduates with skills who can get these great jobs. There are very few great jobs on the outside. Well, that's true. And I'm encouraged by that, that there, there was actual positive reaction from the community college folks because they're under pressure pro- probably more than anybody. So if you pack like, what is that, what are those collection of institutions or that is promoting this myth and still doing it? And on the other hand, where do you see these signs of hope so people 
really bringing up other side of it or debunking the myths. I think you have a few major sources of the myth and they're very powerful. I mean, you have all the major business interest groups along with individual corporations uh, are pretty much daily promote the skills gap. I mean, that's just part of the talking points, right? And a lot of data that they quote is all these ads for workers that are actually not real. The demand is so much greater than supply. Yeah. And also they rely heavily on surveys of CEOs, which are just perceptions, right? So the data becomes 71% of CEOs said this, and then nobody goes and checks, oh, wait a minute, let's look at the, the workforce in your area, your geographic area and the degrees that they have, the educational attainment and the jobs. That, those are empirical questions that never make it into those, those reports. So you have interest groups, business interest groups, CEOs saying that stuff everywhere from the local chamber of commerce up to Capitol Hill and back and in the press. And the press, by the way, you know, well-meaning reporters, because this stuff is just the, the air we breathe, they just repeat these claims, right? So if you challenge a skills gap, you're on the opinion pages. But the skills gap is, a news, is news pages, right? That's just a fact. But then the foundations, which don't, that fund the vast majority of the education reform movement is funded by foundations. They don't employ very many people to, to, to the, to large businesses or to business generally. Um, they're relentlessly promoting, uh, the fantasy economy and the notion that sending everybody to college is the solution in every setting that they can do it. And, and it's, it's overwhelming when you look at the number of reports and, and organizations that are funded by uh, major foundations. Now, they all don't have an identical policy ad agenda, but most of them, most of them believe pretty heavily in human capital theory and, and, and um, as a result, they're really not fans at all of labor unions and, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, so it's, it, it's formidable uh, for sure. You know, um, and then in, in education itself, um, we promote it, but we're in a different position. We, we promote it because of austerity, because we, we need students to pay the bills, unfortunately. Right. And, um, because the states have gradually scaled back what they contribute to public higher ed and, you know, over 70% of students are attend public schools of, of one sort or another, uh, including a ton that go to community colleges. Um, and so, so we're kind of doing that because we have to, we're saying, well, we want to grow our classes because more or less the numbers, uh, you know, show that if, unless enrollment is a certain amount, then, then we're going to be in trouble. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm a little bit encouraged by, you know, um, just, just people outside of those, those world citizens who, who kind of get it, they kind of get, um, that, getting an education isn't, isn't going to fix everything. They, they understand that, that, uh, you know, if I make $50,000 a year with a job uh, for a job that, uh, that I really like, but I, I have a hard time, you know, living on, um, that, you know, I, I think that those folks understand that, that it's not the fault of their professors. It's not the fault of their college or university. Um, the problem is, is the higher ed doesn't defend itself. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting that the only defense that the higher ed has is we, we give you skills to get these jobs, right? Like all the other positive things about education, you know, participation, better reasoning skills, health. I know you're just 
there might be issues with the data, but there are all kinds of other things um, that education and higher ed and degrees provide people with, right? But it doesn't seem to be a good reason to support higher ed. The, the only way we can support higher ed is in economic terms. It gives you returns. The, and and that, that really is uh, one of the big points of the book is that when, when in the 80s and then a little bit later with higher ed, um, the fantasy economy just made education responsible for people's livelihoods. I mean, that was it. That was it. It, it set education up to fail. And that's why we're getting killed across the country. Higher ed is getting killed when all these states have surpluses, right? In Wisconsin, this is happening. You know, West Virginia we, University, we've all seen what's happened there. Um, that state had a significant surplus. All these, a lot of states have surpluses and they're gutting public higher ed, right? Um, so education itself promotes this paradigm that's actually killing it, uh, that, that's harming it. And, but I, you know, I don't think they know how to get out of it, right? Um, and, and all the talking points that we use are all just straight out of the business and foundation world. I mean, um, you know, about the, the labor market upskilling and just everything is about skills, this and skills that, and, and all that stuff is straight out of, of, uh, the 1980s and, and a lot of reports that, that kind of, you know, put forward this notion of a skills gap and. So I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think if we could somehow uncapture higher ed from, from all these interests, I think, um, and, and because I think the, the public actually gets that, that higher education is a public good. Like I, I really do at the, at the end of the day, think that most people understand that, but unfortunately they live in the real economy. So they know that it's a warehouse or it's a college job, right. For my son or daughter. And cause that's the reality. And that's the dilemma that, that higher ed finds itself, unfortunately. It's interesting. I was just looking at this data that showed, you know, U.S. was the highest in terms of OECD countries in the number of degree holders, bachelor's degrees. But now, actually, Europe is either catching up or pretty much U.S. enrollment has been declining. The number of people with degrees have been stable or declining a little bit, but Europe is actually higher and the reason it's higher is because basically it is a public good education and it's funded by the government. So it's a very different framework for how to think about education and degrees. Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if we're, if it were more affordable here, right, then I think those numbers, cause that's really the main, the main barrier for almost everybody uh, who, who doesn't, who thinks about going to college and doesn't go to college. I mean, for almost all of them, it's, it's at the end of the day cost. So what have you managed? I, I'm wondering about kind of reception for, to your book. Uh, have you been, you've been doing talks, you've been talking to people, podcasts. Uh, have you, are you managing to sway people and change their thinking on this? Are you able to debunk some of the myths? What's been re reception? Well, one of the things that I encounter, not so much when I'm talking to people who are sympathetic, but when I'm talking to others, maybe even in higher ed, uh, some of whom may be sympathetic, I don't know, it is this notion that, yeah, but, yeah, you know, um, yeah, but, and, and, because it, it, for us, it's all about austerity or budgets being cut because that, that dictates everything. That dictates what, the, what our, 
what we're going to offer in terms of programs and, and everything else. Um, so too many, too many, I think, uh, folks still think that austerity is God given is, is just somehow, um, you know, the, the way things are now. I mean, that's more or less what a lot of folks, including folks that are appointed by democratic governors, more or less, that's what they say. And that's what they imply. Well, it's unfortunate, but it's just how things are now. We're just not going to spend money, much money on public higher ed, even though it's being blamed for things that might not, it might not be responsible. So I think that, I, I don't know, the sense I get is that, that you know, some people want to get there. They, they almost think that, I don't think anybody really disputes the, the late, I mean, we can dispute the Department of Labor. I mean, you, go ahead, you call them up and, you know, or the Census Bureau or, or the Fed. I mean, go ahead, you, you, you can do that. But I think what some people, you know, including a lot of folks in higher ed would challenge is, it's just how it is now, Neil, you know, I'm sorry. We're, yeah, and in the policy arena with politicians, when you tell them the story, they would say, okay, this is great, but I can't sell it to my constituents. So everybody's asking for money for training and for skill building. I think it would be hard to sell to constituents, but that's why I think it has to be part of this broader shift in not just how we view education, but how we view economic opportunity, right? Um, it's part of the discussion of organized labor. It's part of the discussion of monopolies, which is getting more attention recently um, at the national level, actually. Um, that all this, all this is part of a much wider discussion that if we only, I, I, you know, I agree, it is tough to go out and sell kind of, Hey, education is, should be about all these things. If you go out and give a speech to that effect, to a, a group of people in a community center somewhere, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, but my kid needs a job, you know? And, and so it has to be part of this broader discussion of, of our economy and, and, and neoliberalism generally. Because, you know, you're not just going to shift how people think about education unless you, unless you put it into this bigger discussion. Nobody wants to talk about the structure of corporations and why they are not paying people well and why they're not providing wealth for people and all of these other ways of structuring our businesses that are more equitable. So it's, it's a very different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... Um, you know, at the end of the day, most people should be paid more, some people considerably more. And, uh, and that might sound a little too simplistic, but at the end of the day, I think it all, you know, a lot of it comes down to that. And if we're concerned about inequality and stagnant wages and all the rest of it, then we have to look at, at wages. And that's something that almost never comes up. I talk about a little bit towards the end of the book. Every once in a while, the funders will say, no, let's, let's identify what are so-called good jobs. And the numbers they cite are stunning. And, and what's, what's really disappointing is when the higher ed press reports these numbers, you know, a few years ago, you know, $35,000 is a good job. Uh, you know, in, in, what, in what part of the country and in what century? And if you just look at the core of the largest employers by far in the U.S., it's Amazon and it's Walmart, average pay about $25,000. So that's the bulk of the employment, it's low paid service jobs. That's the kind of jobs we're producing. They don't have to be, by the way, low paid. They could be made into good jobs, but that's, that's what happens. No, so, exactly. And they're not, there's nothing inherently low wage about any of them. Right. What about labor itself? Like, it seems like these are the kind of issues that labor should be focusing on. Are you finding oh. that? 
for sure, there's more more receptivity, you know, to to my argument in among uh, organized labor because I think that ultimately my a big part of the argument is that organized labor is is key to a more equitable economy. And you can also see the throughout the education reform movement a very strong anti uh, teachers union. It's really built on uh, hostility to teachers unions. It's not said out loud by the more sophisticated funders, I and mean, you, you, that would be dumb. But I mean, it, it's an undercurrent. It's always there, and so I think there's much more sympathy for these kinds of arguments among not just teachers unions, but all organized labor. I hope more people read the book. I hope more foundations read it. I hope more policymakers, more people in the labor movement and in education, read this book. It's called "The Fantasy Economy: Neoliberalism, Inequality." and education reform movement. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.